folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, where I can promise that you'll always hear at least one Yorkshire accent, and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships, and happiness, because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a PB at your next race, or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. One way to do this is with regular movement practice. And if you have difficulty fitting it into your daily routine, I've made it easier for you by putting together a series of simple stretching movements in a single page PDF document, along with video links, which you can download for free. If you would like to get hold of a copy, please look for the very obvious link in the show notes. Nutrition is actually a really simple topic, but many folks seem to make it way more complicated than necessary. What we need is a nutrition expert who can translate the scientific data and then cut through the marketing BS to give us some simple pointers. That sounds like a job for a straight talking Yorkshireman. And luckily, we have Nigel Mitchell on hand to help. In case you're wondering about his pedigree, Nigel was the nutritional game changer who worked with Team GB cyclists in the early 2000s and after that with Team Sky during those dominant years. As always, it's a pleasure to have another Yorkshireman on the show. So let's crack on with Nigel. Welcome to the show, Nigel Mitchell. Thanks very much, Simon. So it's... Uh, Five years since we recorded our first episode for the show. You were one of my very first guests, probably in the first four or five. Do you remember that? To be honest with you, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'll dig it out and send it to you. And I can't remember specifically what we talked about, but I think at that time there, we probably were doing them for 20, 30 minutes. So it would have been a brief introduction to nutrition for sport. You know what? Now you mention it, I can remember us doing that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be honest, it seems like longer than five or six years ago. Well, it, it, it also means to me that we have been doing this podcast for five years, which is, yeah, it's an awful lot of my life I've spent gathering information. But do you know what it is? We're sat here at Carnegie School of Sport outside this fantastic new facility where people come to do their sports science degrees and their masters. But talking to people like you, and I've had about 260, 270 guests now, it's like my own little MBA because I get, rather than li- listening to you in a lecture lots of other people, I get to spend an hour with you asking yeah. you all the questions I want to know. Well, to, to be honest with you, Simon, I really value the time and effort that people doing it, uh, do putting podcasts together. And I, I listen to quite a few different podcasts on lots of different mm. uh, subjects. And it's, it's, it's great because it does help. You, you, you do feel a certain level of uh, intimacy. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the learning that you can get from, from podcasts generally, I think, is mm. uh, amazing. So I think that the, they're a great, great public service. Yeah, they're a bit like reading research papers, aren't they? Mm. You, you, you get some people who are just spouting opinions and you get mm. some that are bringing out really, really good content. It takes a bit of a while to work out which is which. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the thing is, 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 is with some of it is being clear what is, what is just your opinion and what's got more of an evidence base. But you're right. I mean, obviously with some podcasts, it's, it's just a platform for people to just to churn out their opinion or to try mm. and just boost their profile and then mm. uh, leverage off the back of it. But I think most good podcasts are genuinely there about trying to better inform and educate and help to support people to do the stuff that they want to do. Well, you know, Nigel, over the years, I've met lots of experts like you, and yeah. nearly every one of those people, including yourself, has been really generous 
in sharing their time and their knowledge. And I'm, you know, in my coaching life, and I'm not at the end of it yet, but I'm further into it than I am starting it. Hmm. And I realise that one of my roles, probably like you do as well, is that we're only we're only sort of taking care of knowledge. We don't hmm. own it. We didn't create it. We've learnt it. We might have developed some of our own ideas, but a lot of it's been out there and we're in charge of it. And then we've got to pass it on to other people for them to do it. And I, so I'm always grateful for, for the like of yourself to and Malcolm and some of the other guests that I've had on to share that knowledge. And um, yeah, I feel that's my role as well in producing this podcast is to try to share great knowledge with people so that they can make use of it. Well, hopefully uh, the listeners will get something useful out of today's conversation. Well, let, for people who don't know you, Nigel, let's tell them what you do. I mean, we touched on it when we talked about the previous podcast. Yeah. Uh, if I said you were a nutritionist, I think I'm doing you a bit of a disservice well, there. I'm in my professional training. I'm a, a registered dietitian, and uh, uh, then as by that, you're a, you're a nutritionist as well. I mean, anybody can actually call themselves a, a nutritionist, but... Uh, to be a registered dietitian, it's a certain clinical qualification than mm. a registration. And, you know, to train to be a dietitian, it's a minimum of a, a four-year uh, biomedical degree with clinical training and clinical practice. And so it's very much a science-based degree with vocational application. So the whole idea of disciplines such as dietetics is being able to translate the intricate knowledge of the science into messages that yeah. people can understand. So in my the way I talk about it, it's 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 really having the type of you know, the real in-depth scientific knowledge. But at the end of the day, it may be looking at getting people to have porridge for breakfast mm. or rice pudding, but actually understanding why from a metabolic, physiological, and even psychological perspective that may be beneficial for the athlete. Mm. But, you know, I mean, I've worked for over 25 years in both clinical and uh, an elite sport, uh, nutrition, uh, got many other interests as well uh, around performance. And, and that's what I'm doing here today at, at Leeds Beckett. So I've got a meeting uh, with a great guy, Dan Snapes, who just finished his PhD last year around thermal physiology. And we're going to be looking at... Uh, planning uh, uh, Jonathan Brownlee's heat preparation going into uh, the Abu Dhabi triathlon in, in November. Mm. Uh, so that's part of where I get involved with as well, is not just the nutrition, but, but a little bit broader with, the, uh, uh, with some of the support and application on, in sport. So I always think that's interesting, you know, that food, nutrition, how, nutri how the food you eat undergoes those chemical and biological processes in the body to provide us with energy to enable us to, to sort of like to, to keep the engine running if you yeah. like and to do all those things we like to do and sometimes you can get really into the weeds in the science and it, and it can become a bit overwhelming and I think we need people like you with the interface who take the science and then turn it into easily understandable bits and pieces for simple well, we people like myself. Well, I mean, all too often we can go down uh, uh, rabbit holes with these. Oh, things. I'm hoping we do today, Nigel. I'm hoping <laughs> the, we do today. You know, you can really go down uh, rabbit holes and, and individuals can invest loads and loads and loads of time mm. doing that. And, and one of the things that, you know, I really find with nutrition and, and diet, that it's actually a really simple thing yeah. for athletes. It's a really simple thing to get right, but all too often people get it wrong. And, you know, talking about like the, the work where I do now, 
so just so that people understand some of that journey. As I said, I've worked in clinical and elite sport for over 25 years, but I'm closely really associated with elite, uh, elite endurance sport, in particular cycling. So yes. I was involved in uh, uh, setting up the the nutrition service uh, for Team Sky uh, when that started over 10 years ago now, which wow. is phenomenal. Yeah. And, it, and it's really interesting because at that time, I was the only uh, really uh, credible nutritionist working in professional cycling. Really? And wow. whereas now... Even, uh, worldwide or just in the UK? No, well, to a level. Right. I found so, that very interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, if you think about it, and it, it's, it, you, you can understand why, because before that time, the whole area around that was very medicalized, and right. it was very much run by the medics that understood some of the, the basic science, mm. but they didn't really understand the application in the food. Mm-hmm. And also, before that time, so much of the nutrition, because there was that, uh, that, that control by the medics, then they thought, well, actually, why do we you know, feed people? Why don't we inject them with it instead? And so there was that culture of using injectable IV recovery. And you know, when I started, I was really surprised when you spoke to people on how widespread injectable recovery was. Now, you, you haven't got to get confused here with, with doping. So this is this at the time, because this was just injecting things like vitamins, minerals, amino acids. Uh, so we weren't talking about performance enhancing. However, this was then, the, this was then banned in, ooh, I can't remember if it was 2010 or 2011 now, or we're at the Giro. But you yeah. can see how that might be misconstrued to somebody if they, if they for well, instance, saw an athlete with an IV in um, well, and, you know, automatically they think about the illegal stuff rather than the absolutely. Um, recovery and, enhancement. And, and, and Simon, don't get me wrong, that is the thin end of the wedge. Mm. And once you start doing something like IV recovery, then how far away is that from using EPO or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I mean I was surprised when I started working in professional cycling because my background had all been about using the alimentary canal, using the digestive system. I've learned how to do that working in, in the clinical setting with compromised mm-hmm. patients on how do you feed these people when they're stressed. And the tradition very much in in cycling, not in all the teams, but there'd been a strong tradition of you know, I, I spoke with doctors and they said it was impossible for somebody to ride the Tour de France without having injectable IV recovery. Really? And they 100% believed it. And what, so they, were, they weren't, they weren't um, taking carbohydrates and proteins and fats through that then? You know, like, so, yeah, like, so, a, pa- so, like a patient in hospital yeah, that might not yeah, have, yeah. Um, that so, might have throat cancer, yeah. so you have to put it in through a tube. Were they I using mean, that as well? Yeah, there were, there were all sorts of different uh, preparations. And wow. some of the, <laughs> and I'm, I'm laughing because they, it were almost like a, uh, a bit of a, uh, 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 a bit black magic, a bit voodoo. Uh, the, the doll, the, all, all, all these doctors would have their own sort of, hmm. You know, special concoctions which made them special, and a lot uh, of it were yes. very much financially driven because mm-hmm. the doctors were getting paid a shed load of money for these for these elements of recovery. Right. And and so the, the 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 typical thing, and and again, the only reason I know is because I've spoke to people. I've not actually uh, been there and seen it and and, and researched it. 
that the you know the the B vitamins, the B minerals, iron, the B uh, amino acids uh, uh, within these, and also the the Giro. I was saying I can't remember if it was. I think it must have been 2011 when IV recovery were banned in cycling, and I saw I saw doctors chucking basically suitcases full of injectables into a skip because basically mm. it was a criminal offence to have those now at bike races. Right. Uh, but, you know, credit to, uh, uh, to Team Sky. They, they, you know, we, we invested in, in looking at, at how we could feed the riders, how we could mm. uh, uh, ensure they were getting the nutrition. And, and I'd say the, the, the interesting thing was that doctors of that period think we were working in cycling genuinely believed that you couldn't mm. ride the Tour de France without taking some IV recovery. So would it be true to say that when you develop techniques in nutrition, for example, because that's what we're talking about here, when you develop techniques in nutrition for elite athletes, yeah. eventually those trickle down to the likes of me and our listeners? Well, yeah, I mean, the, my, part of my philosophy in, 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 in sports, and I think I've always had it, but I sort of really focus on that now, is really looking at what is the job of performance we are wanting to do, mm. and then what do we do to support that performance? So I think, you know, a great example was, again, going back quite a few years, when we were all sat around and we were looking at the team pursuit squad, and, and we're going, right, how can we help support these guys going from, I don't know where, I think bronze or silver or whatever we've got at Athens, I can't remember. How do we do that and help to convert that to a gold in Beijing? And and the philosophy w around the team was how, what what can everybody bring to the table? And the actual impact, what everybody were doing, were really quite small, but you put them all together, mm. the riders, and, and obviously these are phenomenal athletes, but the riders were then able to execute and get gold in, in team pursuit. And that's then where this term of the marginal gains right. came from. Right. And, and, you know, so my job there was to go from a nutrition point of view, how thinking about what they're doing, how do we look at supporting the, uh, uh, you know, the buffering system when people are exercising at that sort of intensity? Okay, how can we do that? So there might be some some supplements that we might look at and understanding the biochemistry behind it. So you look at things like uh, betralanine. And, and now things like betralanine is a really common supplement being used for people that might be doing a lot of uh, uh, track training. So what... But while you're looking at all of those things, there's, there's an assumption there that those riders are actually eating okay in the first place. I mean, you know, especially really? if you've got not, not necessarily the first team, but maybe some of the younger riders, mm. they've not lived away from home for very long. They're living in a house. There's four or five sort of like 19, 20, yeah. 21 year olds together. There's, there's a big assumption, like, like there might be for students at this campus that were in here, that they're actually got the basic mechanics of eating right. Well, I mean, and that was the really cool thing about my work remit is on one hand, we might be looking at things, as I say, that might be influencing the uh, uh, buffering capacity within the system. But I was really interested in the food as well and feeding athletes. Yeah. And so this was really before its time in that now there's a big emphasis in sports about looking at supporting athletes to eat the best they can. Mm. And so I I used to absolutely love and and and. And recently, apparently, 
there was uh, a guy named Thomas and Lou, Luke Rowe talking about when I used to go around to their house and we'd do uh, practical cooking sessions. Right. And, they, you know, they, they, were, they were joking about, you know, the fact they had no money, so they loved that. They weren't joking about that fact. They were joking about it was great when I come around because they'd all have a load of food for free. Uh, but then they were saying that, you know, they, I were, that they had to do all the clearing up and all the mess. And, and, uh, and I, I really enjoyed that opportunity uh, which I think is quite a privileged opportunity mm. to spend time in a situation like that with those athletes of such quality who have, you know, really stood the, uh, the the test of time and was able to influence their practical skills and basic knowledge around food. And mm. and it, I mean, it's it's funny that you that we sort of like touch on that now because that will, you know, I'm going back. 50, over 15 years, I do a lot of that work. And I feel that some of the most impacting work that I do now is actually if I'm in a situation where I'm supporting athletes, like in an altitude camp, and providing the full support from them from the from the food point of view, basically doing the cooking, but also then looking at the other aspects around the sports science, like monitoring hydration, sleep quality, and things like mm. this. So full wider sports. So I actually feel that that has, a, in effect, a greater impact with those guys. Yeah, I've been studying some stuff on circadian rhythms recently, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, there's this whole thing that each organ in the body has its own circadian clock that's all part of the link to the suprachiasmatic nerve, is it? Right, I have no idea. In, in the brain, area. but... Yeah, yeah, all coming by the grain. In, or, in yeah. order to start the production of serotonin at the right time yeah. you have to switch off the liver clock yeah because then it's if it, if, it, if you don't it's producing enzymes which yeah. are working against you yeah, so and through. so then yeah. so then what you want to do is you want to be encouraging people to eat early enough in the yeah. evening so that they can get to sleep at the right time so yeah. even even things like um and that this is something we might touch on later is recreational athletes who are challenged by time training late in the evening eating late in the evening and then not getting the not getting the quality of sleep just because because of their time schedule. Yeah, well, I'm not familiar with looking at how all the different organs are switching on and off at time. No. However, when we do eat, part of the energy cost is what we call the thermic effect of food. TEF. So, yeah. So when we, are, when we are eating, this increases our temperature. And when we are trying to sleep, yes. we're not wanting that high core temperature. Mm. And so... Eating earlier supports this, yes. and the body's not. I mean, again, part of my philosophy in professional cycling nutrition was affected when I spoke to riders uh, like Sean Yates and Max Skiandre, who said that they'd be riding a Grand Tour, and in the last week they'd just be laid in the bed on a on a night with a swollen belly, unable to digest the food. Mm. And it affected the sleep quality. So that mm-hmm. then made me think, how do we provide the food that's going to be easier to digest yeah. so that they're not in this situation? Going back to that thing about the timing of, of food intake, though, yeah. it always makes me think about the difference in cultures, though, between Southern Mediterranean yeah. athletes and, and people who tend to eat later <laughs> in the evening. Yeah. So how does that affect that? You know, a, a tour athlete who has a set schedule when they're finishing well, and when they start the next day. But if they're culturally like eating late, how does that affect their sleep? Yeah, I mean, the it, everything goes out the window when you're looking at a grand tour. It's a, a complete sort of nightmare. But what we what we always tried to do was give the riders a better opportunity right. to have that main 
substantial meal on the bus so that when they got back to the hotel, they weren't starving right. and they were able to eat a little bit lighter if they wanted when they were having an evening meal. But right. they'd, often, they'd often almost have chefs to get the massage done and get their eating done. Right, hence why when we see the team Sky Bus and nearly all the other teams have caught yeah. on to this now, they've got cooking facilities and food prep facilities yeah, well, there for the riders. Absolutely. I mean, the uh, again, this has been a massive uh, uh, change throughout uh, uh, the... Not only World Tour Cycling, you've got a lot of the Pro Conti teams now that have got their own uh, kitchen trucks to give that, that greater mm. deal of control. But I mean, the Team Sky... I'm going to call it a restaurant truck. I mean, crikey, you know, I mean, it, if it's got seating on it for about 12 people, you know, I mean, it is an incredible thing. But interestingly, you know, I moved, uh, uh, I, I only ever thought about working in, in pro cycling for like five or six years. So after the tour of Yorkshire, uh, and I thought I couldn't leave working with Sky, uh, sorry, the tour of Britain, uh, tour de France when it came to Yorkshire, I just thought, I've got to be part of that. Oh, so, yeah. so, so after that, you know, I look, I look to move on, and uh, uh, and I'm going to leave pro cycling altogether. Uh, but someone asked me if I'd go and work with who was who was Garmin then, who is now EF. Yeah. And uh, so I went to work with them, and they were that with Jonathan Waters. Jonathan Waters, in, in, yeah. in, an incredible boss, is uh, is yeah. JV. But the interesting thing though is what I learnt is actually his team and his philosophy. And actually being a little bit in front of Team Sky. Oh, really? But they've just not had the resource to do it all. So they invested a lot in food and nutrition um, uh, way back. And they, he told me what, they were the first team to have their own kitchen truck. Right. So, you know, which I believe. Uh, but So the, actually their philosophy was slightly in front of Sky's, but they didn't have the budget and the profile. So that makes me think, you know, if you're a if you're a recreational athlete listening to this, and you're going to, we, we sat right by the track here at, at Carnegie. So, yeah. you know, if you're if you've got an evening track session, yeah. and then you've got a half hour drive home, maybe one of the things that you should be considering is rather than eating when you get home, yeah. is bring a meal, bring a little cool box. So you've got yeah. to be prepared. So that might yeah. be one of the other things we talk about is organisational. Um, admin yeah. is be prepared. Bring a bring a, a cold pasta salad or Absolutely. something that's got protein and carbohydrates in it, and have that as soon as you finish training, so that you're not losing that half hour eating window. Yeah, but, and also you know if you if you're finishing training here at seven o'clock or eight o'clock, and you're having that substantial meal here, yep. then when you're getting home, you're not having to fill your face and having that full stomach. Yeah. But the bit that I'm particularly interested in when we're talking about food and nutrition yes. is just not emphasising about the carbohydrates and the proteins but actually thinking about the quality of the food overall all of the all of these plant nutrients all of these phytonutrients yes. and we're getting a much better understanding now of the, uh, the value they add to our bodies from a health perspective and again this is one of the things I've become a little bit more interested in through some of the other work that I'm doing is around all this ultra-processed food that ah. uh, uh, that people are eating, and um, I've just finished writing a follow-up uh, sort of uh, plant-based cycling book uh, to one I, I did with GCN that came out nearly three years ago, and we've just done sort of uh, you know something that's more of a, a practical cookbook, and, and part of the genesis for me doing that was that I was reading the work around 
the increase in consumption of ultra-processed diets, mm. and and actually that that sector, the uh, uh, plant-based sector, is one of the fastest growing that is eating the ultra-processed food. Right. So let's let I, I listened to a really good podcast from Tim Spector and. Uh, um, Jonathan Wolf the other day and they were okay. talking about processed foods and of course I would say to a lot of people try and avoid eating processed foods but of course if you get chickpeas that are in a tin there's nothing wrong with those in terms of their quality and their nutrition yeah. but they've been processed because yeah. that's not the natural state if you pick an apple off a tree that's a, probably about as close as you can get to unprocessed yeah. right but now we're talking about ultra processed where they've been through a pro- where they've been through a process and then they've had stuff so a common misconception is that if I eat uh, sorry if I drink um Orange juice, yeah, that's going to be uh, healthy for me. But of course, mm. it's been pulped down. There's no mm. fiber there, so it spikes your insulin a lot quicker. Yeah, so it is right. quite yeah. processed. Yeah. Jams, mm. you pick, you you go to the you go to the uh, fruit picking farm at this time of year. You pick your strawberries, then you go home and you put loads of sugar in it. You boil mm. them all up, and then you make a very healthy jam that's done yeah. yourself. But that is super ultra processed. Yeah, well, I think I mean it's interesting. Me, you talk about jam because I make I make jam this time of year. I, I find mm. it a nice little hobby. I've got a yellow plum tree in the back garden, so I've done some plum jam. I've done yeah. apple yeah. and uh, uh, and uh, blackberry jam. And the the whole area with this of processing and ultra processing is quite confusing. Mm. And uh, and you, you're absolutely right. Most foods are processed to some degree. Uh, now, even, I mean, even chicken breast is processed, isn't it? Because it's not like yeah. it is when it comes off the chicken. No, it isn't. But I mean, it's then what is added to it yes. or what is taken, and that's away. what we mean by ultra processed. Ultra processed, isn't it? yeah, yeah. And and the the interesting and and again, you have to look at things that's, to begin with on sort of like a big scale of population scale level, and then you can try and bring mm-hmm. it down a little bit. But one of the interesting things that we've seen there now is that in this country and in the US. Over fifty-five percent of the population's energy is coming from ultra-processed foods. Right. So that's on a you know on a macro scale, and hence and hence why we've got such a problem with well, obesity in the Western well, world. It's, it's easy to to look at that and go, well, you know, we're getting fatter and we're eating more of this, therefore they both go together. But it's not until you then actually try to do some sort of a, an intervention study, you can understand it better. And and, and some people who will really, you know, really take my hat off to them because to try and get funding to do this type of study is mm. difficult because it's, it's about food, it's not about drugs. But, you know, there was a study done where uh, a crossover design, so it means that they were getting one uh, diet and then uh, after a couple of weeks they get the other diet. Yeah. So they were on ultra-processed foods for two weeks and then they were on uh, uh, minimal processed foods for two weeks. So like real food. Real food. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and uh, uh, when they were on the ultra-processed foods, people were gaining uh, 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 just short of a couple of kilos in, in weight along that time. I think it was a couple of kilos. But there were a substantial weight gain. But also then there were some changes in some of the health biomarkers as well. Mm. And when it were reversed on their own, the minimally processed foods, then actually they were seeing that they, uh, they were losing the weight and the health biomarkers were, were improving. Right. And, and what I see with a lot of elite athletes is quite often, like the normal population, their dietary intakes can mirror that. So quite often their diets can be quite mm. ultra-processed foods. And the bit that we're really missing when we're looking at that is not, the total energy is not the carbohydrate, 
it's the quality of the nutrients, the right. micronutrients that we're just not getting in, in those. So we're not foods. getting enough nutrient density. There's just a, there. there's a big calorie density, yeah, but not a nutrient density. And of course, if you if you're fueling your body with those high calorie foods, you're often going to feel hungry a bit quicker, aren't you? Yeah, and and so therefore you're going to go back to the cupboard and probably snacking. Well, well I mean, there's been quite a lot of work done on sort of the. You know the psychophysiological effect of, uh, of foods that with fat and carbohydrate that actually increase our desires to mm. eat. So there, there was some some work done some years ago that were looking at the donut and basically the mixture of fat and carbohydrate in donuts really encourages you to eat more. I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you know you uh, you've uh, uh, you've had, well I don't either because I don't eat them but people <laughs> tell me they do where there's a big tray of crusty is it crusty creams the company. Crispy cream. Crispy cream. Crispy cream. <laughs> well, if you leave them out too long, they're crispy, yeah. crispy creams. Yeah. So, you know, crispy creams. Crispy creams, and people go, "Yeah, I'll just have one," but they end up eating yeah, three yeah, yeah. and then yeah. feeling quite, yeah. quite sick afterwards because you, you, it overrides mm. the body's sort of ability to control that intake. Yeah. yeah, I did have one. Somebody said to me, "I've got a treat for you. Give me crispy cream." It, it, because I hadn't been eating a great deal of sugar at the time, yeah. it was just an overwhelming sensation. Yeah. It was too much. Um, and I've got a sweet tooth, so for me to say that... Well, um, I can honestly say I've never had a crispy or a crusty cream donut. No. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's just not, it's just not my thing. Uh, but, you know, foods like that really do sort of make us want to eat more. But don't you think that also, um, I think there are a lot of manufacturers, in, in the same way that you're talking about the plant-based and the vegan yeah. foods, that are actually it's just vegan and plant-based crap. Yeah, just well, because you just so because is, you're changing to that for your health, you yeah. still it's like somebody saying, "Well, I've been eating vegan yeah. McNuggets." It's still rubbish McNuggets. Yeah, they yeah, just happen to be vegan. Is. So, so this is part of what I, part of my messaging or part of my conversation is not to be preaching saying this is really bad or this is really good. It's really about informing people mm -hmm. so people make the choices for themselves, mm -hmm. and it brings us on to all the, the the whole sort of movement in where we're obtaining our foods from. Yeah, so. You know, the amount of pre-prepared meals now is going up and up. So ready, fresh, that sort ready. of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's loads yeah. and loads and loads on the uh, on the market. And, yeah, the, so, so many people now, once, twice a week, they'll be having meals at home that is prepared by somebody else for them. And that's not even including, you know, uh, the... Uh, uh, takeaway type meals this is just sort of like pre-prepared that you may get in the cold chiller in the supermarket or you may get delivered to your right house. right so it's not like hello fresh where you're actually getting a basket full of um raw vegetables that are delivered and a recipe sheet for you to make you're talking about there's been there's a kitchen i don't they call them dark kitchens somewhere where, where they're in a, in a whole load of units and there's one doing curries and one yeah, doing and yeah, I mean, that's all packaged yeah. and you get them brought around and basically you have to you have to put them in the oven or put them in the microwave and it's ready you for you. You regen them. You regen them, in, in, in right. other words. But you don't know what additives to put well, in, what preservatives. Well, this is the interesting thing, Mark, what I've been looking at. You say, like, you know, the, you've got the uh, HelloFresh, uh, uh, and it's a continuum. So what they do is they conveniently put everything together for you and they give you a recipe so you still feel that you're engaged in in the process mm. and then you yeah you've got you know you've got some foods uh, some uh, uh, companies that are doing uh, uh, meals that might not be great quality and then you've got other ones that are doing meals that are really 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 good quality mm. 
The problem is, is how as the consumer do you discern of ones which are great quality and mm. ones that aren't great quality? Well, that's, I what, think that's difficult. Well, and that's what I was going to come back to, whether it's pre-prepared foods like that or you go to the supermarket and you pick up a bag of healthy muesli. Yeah. And I, I saw one recently by a company, a sports nutrition company. It's like athletic, it's like athletic granola. <laughs> and, it's, and it's got dark chocolate in it, but you're looking yeah. at it's chocolate mass. Yeah. It's not quality chocolate, it's chocolate mass, which is the lowest quality cocoa stuff, isn't it? It's just marketing um, though, that. Yeah, of course it is, but, but yeah. again, people will see the headline. If you, if you actually look at um, the mm. ingredients for um, some of the granolas, the ones that actually look the worst are the ones that have got the least yeah. uh, volume of sugar in versus yeah. the ones that are light because yeah. they're low in fat, they've but got I to think, keep the taste up. Yeah, but I think, again, we can get over-obsessed with these things. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're having a small bowl of granola two or three times a week, then... It ain't going to make masses and masses no. and masses of different. But you're right, the marketing can mask what is really there. A great example is, what were the, I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I just love cooking. And uh, unless, you know, I'm going out to a restaurant for a meal, the food that I have at home, everything is, you know, it's yeah, fresh. That's, that's, like, that's like me, yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, the, looking in the, I, I, one of the things I like making is my own guacamole. And I was looking in the in the supermarket, and there was this this product, and it was called something like guacamole like. So I looked at it, and it didn't have any avocado in it. Oh, really? It was just just like guacamole. Just maybe the colour were like guacamole. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it just made made me realise the the whole that whole area. And a lot of people don't realise that when you're buying a lot of things that you perceive to be more natural, they often have got a lot of hidden sugars mm. in them. So, you know, I, I, I go to the States maybe once or twice a year doing, doing different sorts of camps or different things with athletes. And you go in the supermarkets there and trying to find peanut butter oh, yes. without sugar in it. Or without palm oil. Or without palm oil. is yeah. really difficult. Yeah. But not only that, when you look to buy... The honey, yeah, or the you know different types of products like that. Again, they've got the uh, uh, fructose corn syrup added to them to pad yeah. it out. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 you don't just see that on the product. You've got to look at the label for it. Well, there's another one there with yogurts. I went round, I went round the supermarket about three times trying to find Greek yogurt mm. with some fat. Yeah, and I couldn't find any yogurts with fat. They were all zero percent fat, yeah. and they were all about three kilos as well. Yeah. So I'd have bought enough to feed a yeah. family of five for a week, never mind myself. And uh, I asked the manager, "Excuse me, do you have any yogurt, Greek yogurt? Well, we've got a Greek style yogurt, so no, yeah, no, I Greek yogurt. Yeah. I want Greek yogurt. Well, we've got that other yogurt there." I said, have you got any with fat? No, no, we don't do fat. Well, why yeah. not? Well, it's what customers want. They don't want fat stuff in the food. Right, so I was very disappointed with my Greek yogurt. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a, I've mentioned the names, I'm a massive uh, budget supermarket shopper, uh, Audi and Lidl. Yeah. Love them both to death. Don't yeah. know which I prefer, maybe Audi at times. Uh, but the, you know, I, I, I were at Audi yesterday and I got this really, really good 10% fat Greek yogurt. And it's which brilliant. one do you get? Because I get oh, the Fahe one, Fage. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes get that, but that's, it, well, they're own brand. Right, okay of 
comparable to that. It would bring that you could stand, a, you know, your, your spoon up. You see, it, now some people are going to be going ten percent fat, Nigel. Why would you go for ten percent well, fat? That's not healthy for you. But I, I, I know how much fat I'm eating in yes, my diet. No, I know you so, do. But so just so ex- just explain from a nutritional point of view why that's actually well, a good thing. Well, we need we need fat in our diets, and the the, the more understanding we really have about fat is actually again when we've got these. Uh, processed fats when we're getting the you know the uh, 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 the fats that are that become changed within the processing and these are the ones that really do the worst for us. So the industrialised types industrialized of fats, fats yeah. you know, where uh, 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 where they have you know, been hydrogenated to, mm. so they become solid. So these are ones that are not really natural in nature. So as a consequence, we can't really process them that well. So here's an interesting thing for you in America, a lot mm. of the nutritionists who there's like dr kate shanahan who's who's the one dr kate she talks about highly processed um Mm. food oils but they in in america rapeseed is like one of those that you shouldn't touch whereas over here i think it's got a slightly different production process hasn't it yeah i mean i'm not i'm not that familiar with rapeseed i'm I'm more of an olive oil person i think that's we're working in in cycling, but a lot of it with a lot with with these oils is again the message is is, is try not to eat too much of them. Yeah, yeah. And when we're looking at spreads like butter, you know, again having a little bit of butter isn't really going to do any out. It's when we're having half a pound a day of the of this stuff. You know, it's mm. when people are. You, you always never ceases to amaze me. You, you see people in a cafe and they'll put three or four butter pats on one slice of toast. You know, yeah. whereas one of those butter pats will do me three slices. You know, yeah, we say yeah. it's. It, a lot of it is the quantities that we that, uh, that that we tend to have. So, I mean, the underlying message there is everything's fine generally. Moderation. I mean, I always think, you know, when somebody says, "Oh, you shouldn't be eating pizza," well, I've been eating pizza you know, <laughs> once, once, twice a month, and I'm still alive. It hasn't killed me. Well, I, I, I'd you know, it's not like to say, like, you know, if you eat pizzas, I think can be a superfood. I mean, I once a once a week, I uh, I get I, I get my pizza oven going and. And uh, it's, it's, it's a potential future project is to do uh, a book on uh, uh, wood-burning pizzas. Uh, making. <laughs> Good man. But, yeah, the, it, it depends on, on, yeah, it's like everything we say, it depends. So, like, you know, if you're looking at a real traditional type of pizza, there isn't that much cheese on them. No. Uh, the way that you actually do the pizza dough is by slow-proving it. So... When you when you when you're doing that type of pizza dough, you, if you if you if you're looking at doing uh, cooking on Saturday, you actually start proving it on the Wednesday, right? And you prove it cold in the in the oven in the fridge, right? And by doing this slow process, you get a greater hydrolyzation of the gluten. So a lot of the gluten is actually a lot easier to digest, right? And it's the same. Well, I mean, one of the things that's super trendy at the moment, and you get charged premium for it, is sourdough. Oh, bread. so that's what I was going to say. That process you were talking about there sounds a bit like Sa- cultivating yeah, the absolutely. mother for the uh, sourdough, yeah. doesn't it? So during during lockdown, and you couldn't get yeast. I like doing my own bread, and so I do make pizzas every week. And uh, the uh, uh, I got into sourdough making, and now I, I make sourdough bread maybe every other day. I'll do a lot, and. We tend to be put off because people say, oh, it's a really long process. And, you, and, it, and it's not actually at all. It's no longer than making normal bread. It's just the proving aspect of it takes longer. And, uh, and it becomes a bit of a hobby. So, you know, sourdough bread, again, because of that fermentation, 
there's an hydrolyzation of the of the gluten and the actual absorption of it is a little bit slower so yeah. it has a lower glycemic index yes. than, than like your white bread and, and of course if you're making it yourself you've got none of those sort of preservative additives that no, are in there there's no, no emulsifier which obviously no. you've got bucket loads of emulsifier in your kitchen haven't you well this is <laughs> this, this is where you know, we're talking about that um, processing so if you buy some of the breads that you can get in the supermarket they're considered as ultra processed because of some of the added ingredients and you know some of these things you look at the use by date and it's got like a three month shelf life on it I mean that can that can never be right but you look you look at something like a, an old made sourdough then the processing is much much less six ingredients the, probably the, it's not even less than that you've got flour water salt and your uh, yeah that's it flour water salt you're using your starter which is uh, flour and water right so your ingredients are very limited we just well we i mean I, I don't know where in the world your listeners are from uh, but obviously we are based in yorkshire and so i'll just say that if you are into doing your own bread and you are things like that then getting bread from some of the uh, uh, some of the mills uh, getting the flour you can actually tell the difference in the quality of the flour so i when i'm uh, when i'm over sort of the Sheffield side of, of Yorkshire. Mm. I go to Woosborough Mill. Right. I get my flour from Woosborough Mill. I'll drop them an email first or a phone call to make sure they're going to be open. And then I'll get, you know, quite a few kilos of their uh, white organic uh, bread flour. And uh, it, it's it's absolutely great for baking. So a little plug for... Uh, was Brimel. Well, I, I'm, I'm not quite making my own stage, but we've got a fantastic Polish bakery up the road oh, that, amazing, that uses yeah. a traditional Polish break, um, bread making yeah. techniques, and they bake fresh sourdough every yeah. day. And yeah. uh, and then there's a French bakery, and I've spoken to the lady there, and she has sort of talked to me about the way in which she makes the bakery. So I've got two really good and, and they, fairly economic um bakeries near me they, i'm, I'm very lucky with that but we lost i think the technique of sourdough because people just wanted to rush the processes through for everything but but mm. actually when you understand the process that you the 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 labor side is no longer with a sourdough but the the production time is longer but if you've got the right production facilities mm. you can still produce it i, I mean i think when people talk about nutrition they mm. forget that we're actually eating food and we're actually eating meals yeah. and eating and if you look at these blue zones where they've got these populations where there's a large percentage of people that are living to a, you know, 90 to 100, yeah. um, it's not just the fact that they live in the Mediterranean, they live, they live in this valley somewhere. It's the whole process. The, the older people are respected parts of the community. Yeah. They've still got some purpose in life. But also food and meal times are actually like a social institution. They sit mm. around and they make the food and they prepare it from yeah. fresh and they chatter why it is and so I, I think that is also something that modern life has sort of like pushed aside is taking the time to prepare meals so we want we want stuff to be done quickly um you, you probably would just you, you're a couple of years younger than me Nigel but Harold Wilson said in the 60s that you know we'll have so much uh leisure time in the future <laughs> we won't know what to do with ourselves and of course it seems like we've got less because because all of these labor saving devices just kid us into thinking that we can cram more into the day but we've lost sight of the valuable stuff I, I, I totally agree, but it's not only it's not only that that the communications we have—the phone, the iPad, mm. the laptop—it means that people might do the phone shift at work, they come home, 
and then they're catching up with emails. So it squeezes the time yeah. that people have got to do other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's. I know we've got um, a little bit of time left, but I know you've got to go to a meeting as well. Let's let's go right back to the beginning. Um, we were talking about some of the basic things, and you know, like with those professional cyclists, but the young ones getting them sorted on the basic stuff. There's a phrase that I quite like about mowing the lawn while the house is on fire, yeah. and I and I think a lot of people. Um, you know, I've got this whole idea about marginal gains that they mm. need to look for little gains here, mm. and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's some very obvious, massive gains that we can all make. So, um, again, back to your point about wanting to do things quickly rather than mm. taking time. There aren't any quick fixes. If you're in the sport of endurance, it takes yeah. time to build endurance, and endurance sports take time to to train for and complete. You're 100 right. You can't cut corners in the in the long run. So all of this. So if you see a book saying nutrition hacks, you should ignore it and go for Nigel's new <laughs> plant-based um, eating book. Oh, the the, uh, uh, you know, the cycling nutrition books have done as well. The general ones, but no, I think the I think that anything that people is going to increase their interest and understanding, mm. then there's value in, in doing it. And, and while I'm saying there isn't any shortcuts, if you look at things and you think about it and you're organised, you can actually manage it, uh, what you're doing, uh, much better. Right, so that, that, so that that's one of the, as a nutrition coach, so that I'm mm. way down the ladder compared yeah. to where you are at, Nigel, but for me, it's helping people to deal with the barriers that they see in front of yeah. them to, to, to eating properly. So, for instance, somebody rushes out of the house in the morning because they haven't got time for breakfast, but maybe they could have pre-prepared, they could have put some berries with yeah. a little bit of, um, with some oats mm. and some nuts and some Greek yogurt into a bowl the night before, left it in the fridge. Got it out so, in the morning. So they get it out yeah. in the morning. So it, it takes five or ten minutes in the evening to do that. Or maybe when they're cooking dinner, and making a salad or making making something, mm. they chop a few more vegetables, cook extra, and then they can take that to work for them. So it's yeah. it's thinking ahead and planning ahead. Yeah. So um, I mean, we we, yeah, you know, always part of my just more academic research focus has always been looking at looking at phenomenon that I see in sport, and then trying to understand it more mm-hmm. from a an academic perspective. So. Uh, you know, uh, been involved with a lot of uh, research projects where we've been trying to look at different things that we do in sport. And one of the ones was really trying to understand more around athlete behaviours with food. So mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago, uh, 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 with a student called Megan Bentley, who's uh, now uh, got her PhD, we, we did a PhD looking at aspects of behaviour change and behaviour change models in athletes around food. And, it, and this actually changed my opinion on uh, athletes and non-athletes when we were looking at some of the behaviours that we saw, because I used to think, well, surely all they've got to be able to do is just you know put a few bits together and 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 put that bef- before they go to bed on a night. That's really yeah. easy to do. However, when you understand. The, some of these models better, you realise it's not always that pe- you, you have to understand what are those barriers. Is it that people haven't got the understanding? Mm. Is it that they haven't got the facilities, the capabilities? Uh, is it that they haven't got the motivation? Uh, what is it that's actually acting as barriers to those people? I'll give you a real example of that, Nigel. Um, a few months ago, we were in Brooklyn, New York, yeah, and we stayed in a a less salubrious part of Brooklyn, okay? We walked out, we're walking along the street, and Beth and I both like to prepare and cook our own food, yeah. right? So we like to we like to go to the grocery store, look at the vegetables and start from scratch. 
we went into some of the corner stores there mm. and you couldn't find, you'd have been challenged to find a healthy meal out of everything yeah. in any of those stores. Now, if you were an up-and-coming athlete that um, you didn't have transport, so you couldn't get down mm. to cost, uh, to Whole Foods or to yeah. Trader Joe's, yeah. right? Because it, the next, it was three stops on the yeah. um, on the subway and a 15-minute walk. Um, so those were the only places you had available to buy your food. You've, you're almost spending all your time looking for the least worst options, but even then, those options are mostly calorie dense. So, so yeah. sometimes environments are real challenges well, as well, part, isn't it? That's part of it. That's one of the yeah. barriers is understanding yeah. that environment that people yeah. are in, and how that then acts as a, a mm. barrier. And this is this again where I've sort of changed my my, my thought process and, the, and my mind a little bit is that I understand now that actually, you know, I will really quite anti the uh, pre-prepared meal services. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, now I look at it and I go, for a lot of people, this is a really good option. If they can find the really good quality yeah. services, then that can really support them. Yeah, and I think, for me, one of the things is that I think you talked about before about informing people. For me, it's a continuum. It's not like this is worse than this is best. Is what yeah. can we do to help move your slider a yeah. little bit better? Like, okay, you might be eating Warburton's highly processed white bread today if we can get you to eating wholemeal bread tomorrow that's not perfect but it's a step in the right direction it, and maybe it takes us four steps to get you to making your own sourdough or, yeah or people understanding that actually you know having a couple of slices and if that's what they really like warburton's with fish and chips once a week mm. it's not really going to hurt anything ah, so it's when they do that every day tough of the track elf tupper <laughs> exactly <But> the, <laughs> fish and chips in the paper with a bit of uh, with some bread yeah and, and just some mushy peas as well yeah, yeah, it go yeah. well but you know the it, it, it's just it, it is thinking where things go along that continuum and thinking of, and just I mean, having more more what i would call like mindful eating uh, let me ask you a few quick fire questions then, right. nigel now before we finish all right, right so there's a lot of fad diets out there yeah um your thoughts on keto Short term versus long term. Yeah, I mean, and the, the very term you use, key, uh, very term you use, fad means that it's not something that is sustainable for people. Right. So anything that's not sustainable isn't something that I'm over supportive with. No, I mean keto has got a place, and it was it was originally um, formulated for people who had epilepsy, wasn't it? So yeah. people with a very specific medical condition, from which eating a super restrictive diet was actually mm. going to give them a better quality of life. But that's mm. not most triathletes. No, I mean, well, again, things change, and we've 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 moved through this this time of of really restricting carbohydrate where we're looking at how can we actually feed more carbohydrate now for a lot of people. Ah. And, and we're now understanding, you know, like at the elite end, we've never been restricting carbohydrates on these guys. Uh, you can't do it with that elite end because the bodies so, break down. So low carb, high fat then? I, what for who? Um, uh, endurance athletes? But no, they, again, for me... Any of th those models, some people might like them for a short while, but it's not something that's sustainable, especially from a performance point of view. Okay. Um, you talked a bit about plant-based, so yeah. vegan and vegetarian. Yeah, I mean, if that's what people want to do and they invest some time and effort with it, then it's absolutely fine. I don't yeah. see it as an advantage. And again, my interest in that field is not to pre preach and promote, is but to better inform and educate. So 
when we all watch game changes, <laughs> right? We should be un- we should understand the narrative there and maybe the driving force behind producing it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. You, you know, I mean, there were the, the, there were a lot of political and financial motivations for for doing that. The great thing for me for that particular program was it's really challenged a lot of people's thinking. Right. What about eating of red meat? We keep hearing these stories about how red meat, even in people exercise, can increase your risk of heart attacks. Um, and that it's not particularly ecologically friendly. Uh, I'm not a great believer in that, um, mm. and I'm going to get shot down by a few listeners, but your thoughts? Well, my, my thoughts on it, to be, again, to be honest, I don't want to sound boring, but like that, you know, that if, if this is something, nutritionally, there's a lot of really good things in red meat. Uh, and if it's something that you like and you want to bring it into your diet, I don't see anything wrong with it, but it's the amount that we eat mm. and the quality that we eat. So, well, I, right. you know, all the, when I have red meat, you know, I buy it from a local butcher who's able to tell me which farm it comes yes, from. Yes, I'm exactly the same. And my friends take the mickey out of me because we were in a restaurant in America and the, <laughs> the waiter was busy telling us about this beautiful cut of steak that he'd got. Yeah. And I said to him, is it grass-fed? Yeah. And they were all chortling. And I'm like, no, nah, it's really important, actually, because yeah. you mentioned high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, yeah, the peanuts, if it's not yeah. grass-fed beef, then it's fed out of the corn lot. Yeah. And that's got a lot of high fructose corn in it. And that gets yeah. into your food and that yeah. affects your omega-3, omega-6 balances. Exactly. Yeah. I bet it's very... But, this is the the thing is is for the consumer is how do they know what they're buying? Yeah, and that is the real challenge that people have. So, so again, you know, I might get shot down for this because it is it is premium that meat I tend to buy is is grass fed, and yeah. and you know you get shot down because that yeah that's expensive. But I'm making decisions about what it's same when I'm buying chicken, I'm getting the free range uh, chicken and and not just the massive breasted sort of uh, uh, mass-produced chicken. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, we talk a lot about sugars. We talked about, um, you know, blood glucose and that sort of thing. And I do think there's a lot of triathletes, not of endurance athletes, think they can get away with eating a lot of sugary stuff. And yeah. I, I do wonder um, whether in the future we'll be finding out we've got an epidemic of diabetics who've uh, wantonly eaten cake and, and chocolates, mm. thinking, well, I'm lean and I'm doing all this mm. exercise. Um and yet it's part of the aging process. But how do we get around consuming sports gels and energy bars all the time while we're riding Is there some, and running? Is there something else we can do? You know, can we make yeah, our own I'm, stuff? I'm not, I'm not a massive fan on uh, uh, gels and sports drinks. I think they've got the place from a, a performance perspective, but, you know, for just general usage. I mean, if somebody's going out, and like the longest ride I tend to do is, uh, you know, the 80K two and a half hours, two hours 45, and I have two bananas on that. Yeah. You know, and and, and I'm not a, a really salty sweater, so I just have water, or in the winter, I have fruit tea in my bottle because that makes me drink more. So, you know, we, we don't need in our general exercise. Now, if we're training for an Ironman or a 70.3, then, then it's important that we really habitualize our race nutrition within our training. Mm. That's different. And so bringing that nutrition into key training sessions so that we're fully familiar with it for when we're doing that important race. But when we're looking at, you know, just going out training, or if you're somebody like myself, I don't consider what I do as training, I consider myself as an habitual exerciser. Me too. What I'm wanting to do there with my nutrition is supporting my enjoyment of that of that mm. exercise. So like today, I did a, I got up, I had two espressos, need my espresso, uh, did a, a 5k run, 
came back and then I just did uh, 45 minutes sort of similar to type of exercise you were doing today. You were calling it strength yoga, yeah. do body weight exercises, chins, yeah, yeah. things like that. Did that for 40 minutes. And then uh, I had uh, a couple of poached eggs with spinach and some sourdough bread. That's what my breakfast was. Yeah. Omelette for me. Um, <laughs> um, peppers, tomatoes, onions, a couple of... Uh, couple of slices of um, bacon from my local butcher yeah and i mean and again every now and again i, I quite yeah i love a i love a bit of bacon but it's it's getting that you know mine come from my local butcher and the the uh uh, uh you know it's a, a dry cured sort of bacon yeah. so yeah that's where I, that's where i tend to have but for a lot of a lot of people who are, who are listening i think the main messages where i'm just getting people to to think about hopefully is is not to overanalyze and overthink and keep things as as simple and as and as natural as possible and enjoy what you're doing and focus on the nutrient density rather than the calorie density definitely around the nutrient density i mean if you know people get obsessed with with body weight but the thing to do is rather than necessarily obsessed with body weight is look at fluctuations in body weight mm. so actually look at okay you know what is it that you're doing why is it you're doing it is, is, is it really worth being two kilos lighter? Is it all worth all the investment? Probably not for the vast majority of people. But look at maintaining that body weight rather than it going up and down all the time. Mm. And in, in the winter season, don't look at gaining, you know, five or six kilos. Just keep it quite, keep it, keep that consistency going. Yeah, I think that word sustainability as well is what can you, what can you do now? And, and if you think about, can I still be doing this? nutrition pattern in five years time yeah like with your training activity yeah. for me can i still can i still be doing now what i'm doing in five I years mean, time i'd love if i yeah i mean well yeah uh, my running's pretty pretty rubbish pretty slow but if i'm still able to go out and do what i'm doing in five years time i'm going to be pretty happy yeah me too listen nigel i know you've got to go i'm sure we we've missed a few things off there <laughs> so we're probably gonna to have to come back but yeah. i appreciate your time today thank you very much for being You're here welcome thank you simon Thank you again to Nigel for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. I hope you didn't mind the aircraft going overhead. Uh, that was a, a sort of byproduct of us sitting outside in the sunshine at um, Carnegie Sports Centre. Anyway, we talked about a lot of things. You can find the links to most of today's discussion topics in the show notes below, including um, details on how to get in touch with Nigel and read some of those books he was mentioning. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and hit the subscribe button. Also, don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free mobility program. That's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.